0: Welcome to Religious Studies News. I'm your host, Christian Peterson, and today I'm here with Lina Salehme, Associate Professor of Law at Tel Aviv University and winner of the AAR Book Award in Textual Studies. She's here to speak to us about her book, The Beginnings of Islamic Law, Late Antique Islamic Legal Traditions, published by Cambridge University Press. Congratulations, Lina, and thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you, and thank you for having me
0: listeners then they might think you know what they know about scholarship on islamic law is often very technical research but your work it it really illuminates many issues at the center of islamic studies and i imagine uh, much broader and and hence why you won the award so for listeners in other sub-disciplines who might think why would i want to read this book on islamic law perhaps we can start with how do you imagine that others in the study of religion will benefit from from reading your book
1: Well, it's a great question, because I actually have a friend who told me that the title of my book is horrible, because it only captures a small (laughs) fraction of what the book is about. And he's probably right, because... Truth be told,
0: that is a good point. Yeah, yeah,
1: truth be told, it's not really only about Islamic law, and uh, I admit freely that I am not good at coming up with titles. I didn't take marketing classes, and I probably should have, right? <laughs> because I don't, I don't know how to do these things. I think some people have a natural talent at coming up with titles, but that's not me. And the truth of the matter is that this is a book that's about the methods of religious studies, and anyone who's working on a tradition whether it's a legal tradition or what some might call a religious tradition, would benefit from reading the way the book deals with a variety of methodological issues. For scholars of religion who are working on traditions in a historical context and who might be troubled by Talal Asad's school of work, critical secularism studies in general, the book offers a way of thinking about how to study a tradition without anachronistically projecting ideas about religion. Because ultimately, a lot of what the book is dealing with is precisely that. In addition, the book is uh, an attempt to sort of situate Islamic studies within historical studies and within jurisprudential studies. So really, anyone who's interested in religion, law, or pre-modern history, particularly late antique history, would benefit, I think, from the methodological discussions. The way that the book is structured is it's a tripartite uh, kind of design. And what I mean by this is that the odd-numbered chapters do methodological critiques that present the framework or the background for the case studies that are the even-numbered chapters. And the design really came about as a result of doing work in a field that is uh, not very theoretically engaged and constantly needing to sort of explain why I was doing what I was doing. And as a result, this uh, kind of framework developed and emerged. So the first chapter looks at the question of source criticism, and scholars who deal with fields where source criticism is dominant, and that's rabbinic studies, but also all sorts of other uh, fields that I know less about, but certainly rabbinics is is an obvious one, would understand, and from what I gather from people who've read the book, uh, appreciate the kind of critique of source criticism that's offered in that particular chapter. The main point being that the methods that we use to study traditions have substantive implications for the ideas that we develop about those traditions. And in the case of source criticism, this idea of an original text leads to an idea of an original Islam, perhaps subconsciously, but certainly substantively it does happen. And the third and fourth chapters deal with issues of racial origins, effectively, which is not criticism of the first chapter, but rather the comparative philology issue, which is related And there it's all about how you define what is Islamic and what is not Islamic and how you understand the relationships between Islamic and non-Islamic traditions. And here again, this is entirely relevant for anyone who's working on a tradition and trying to understand its beginnings and trying to figure out how to correlate, for example, the rabbinic Jewish tradition with Zoroastrianism or with the Roman tradition. So that is then applied in the chapter on circumcision which takes up this issue of circumcision, which is precisely a hybrid, multiple, multivalent kind of uh, tradition. And then the, the fifth and the sixth chapters deal with issues of orthodoxy and narratives about history. And there the point is just to examine how it is that we tend to understand traditions from internal narratives of historical change and chapter five basically presents a contextual history, arguing that we need to understand Islamic legal history within a regional context. And the case study on wife-initiated divorce demonstrates that when we look at legal cases in that way, we can actually track changes across legal traditions rather than focusing on one single one. So basically, the three kind of pairings are pairings that deal with issues that I think a variety of religious studies scholars would be interested in.
0: Now, uh, this is a, it's an excellent book. Uh, it's also very challenging. Um, and you provide, as you, you mentioned, this kind of spirited critique of uh, both kind of the approaches of uh, many of our scholarly perspectives and approaches. Um, and then also these kind of case studies that exemplify uh, where these new directions in, in your approach uh, can take us. Um, some, some people might be unfamiliar with kind of, uh, Islamic legal history more generally. Um, and I, I know you kind of do this more uh, closely in some of the specific chapters, Uh, but can you give us a little bit of, uh, an idea of how scholarship on Islamic law is often framed or approached, um, and perhaps a little bit about, uh, how, how you came to kind of, uh, how this project emerged for you, where did the kind of key point where you said, I'm going to make this very specific critique, uh, where did that come out of?
1: Well, the critiques came gradually over time as I sort of encountered one sort of uh, dominant framework after another and found them to be problematic and then sort of developed the critiques along the way. The book really discusses three or maybe four, we could say, uh, dominant ways of understanding Islamic legal history. The first one is this question of origins. And that's all about trying to think of Islam as having a kind of anthropomorphic birth and formative period and development. And uh, there's a broad critique in the book of this kind of evolutionary, linear developmental understanding of Islamic history. And that's a major theme and throughout the chapters. It's also related, though, I somewhat maybe ironically, to the acceptance of orthodox Islamic understandings of law, of Islamic law specifically, and narrating Islamic law through that lens. So in chapter five I have this critique of the great men's story of Islamic law, the tendency to think that a Shafi'i was the father of Islamic jurisprudence, but also in more generally speaking to think that it's only usul al-fiqh that developed Islamic law in its so-called mature form. And there is a general tendency in the field to reject late antique or heterodox or non-normative, basically, law as being part of Islamic law. So those evolutionary ideas also actually interweave with certain orthodox ideas, and the book emphasizes a critique of those major aspects. More broadly speaking, though, there's this general question of what does it mean to study a tradition, and what kinds of ideas people bring to the study of Islamic legal history that come from particular Protestant Christian notions of religion or more generally from a modern religious studies perspective. And so there's a lot about anachronism and attempts to sort of study Islamic legal history without projecting these kinds of assumptions.
0: Part of how you do this is through through what you're calling contextualization. You outline uh, kind of various angles in which you approach this through temporal, geographic, and intellectual Perspectives, I guess we can call them. Part of what you're doing here is uh, this this process of redescription, which I think is very, very valuable. Can you outline the categories that you use to contextualize your study and lay out some of the nuances in your reconstruction of these these analytical tools?
1: Yes, definitely. So, the temporal, intellectual, and geographic contextualization that I discuss in the introduction of the book are really about situating Islamic studies within other Academic studies. So the temporal dimension is about late antique and medieval. And it presents a kind of critique of this notion that we should use a chronology of Islamic legal history that's based entirely on internal Islamic legal uh, stories, basically. And here, my objective is to actually say let's situate the beginnings of Islamic law within the late antique context and let's talk about Islamic late antiquity temporally as a legitimate period of time. There's some pushback against this because there's this notion that these are Eurocentric and modern uh, Western categories, and I don't discount those aspects of that critique. But there's, I think, a more serious problem, which is the kind of narrow, isolated approach to the study of Islamic legal history that doesn't situate it within a particular temporal context. The intellectual context is really about intellect, intertextuality. And here I mean that when we are talking about Islamic legal texts, we shouldn't be ignoring other contemporaneous texts from other traditions in the region. And I make a lot of effort in, the, in my work to think about and to study, although never as much as I would like, but certainly to think about other traditions and how they may be being read into Islamic legal texts. And obviously because of my own specialization, I focus a lot on uh, Jewish legal texts and Jewish texts more broadly. And so if I see a connection between something in an Islamic legal text and in the Bible, then I think it's actually quite productive to, to analyze it and to think through it. And the third contextualization is geographic. And by that I mean that I'm very interested in understanding Islamic law within the Southwest Asian context and placing the beginnings of Islamic law within a particular region. Once we do that, then we understand that there's a pre-Islamic background that's not as the kind of conventional way of thinking of this a source of borrowing and influence, which I critique thoroughly in the book, but rather as the source of what I present as a, a metaphor for the craft of Islamic legal recycling. So overall, the book is actually concerned with showing Islamic law to be a kind of recycled artwork. And just like in recycled artwork, you take or reuse all sorts of pieces and then you turn them into something that can't easily be identified, meaning that you can't really figure out precisely what were the raw materials that were used in the piece of recycled artwork, so too is Islamic jurisprudence in its beginnings, this kind of fusion of all sorts of pre-Islamic, Islamic, customary other kinds of laws and norms
0: together. Through the case studies where you use these analytical framings, um, one of the big takeaways for me was this tension that you demonstrate between the late antique, what you're calling legal heterodoxy versus a medieval legal orthodoxy. Can you talk a little bit about what happened over this chronological process where we have pluralism of legal opinions and what, what kind of shapes the, the transition to this narrowing uh, of legal options in the, the medieval period?
1: So it's a broad story with multiple complex causal factors, and I don't want to claim that I've outlined or identified all of them because certainly there's much more studying to be done about these issues. But broadly speaking, we can see that there is a shift from a late antique period in which there are hundreds of Islamic legal schools and there are multiple options to the late medieval period where you have a few orthodox Sunni, a few orthodox Shi'i legal schools. And the questions about how that happens, I think, are very important ones. Some scholars have already shown the ways in which the Islamic State by sponsoring particular legal schools, made consolidated the power of those legal schools. And I, I think that's certainly important. But there are there are multiple other factors going on that we know less about, and those are the economic factors and the social factors. Issues of conversion and issues internal to the legal system itself, that is, how it is that jurists on their own, within their own community of legal professionals, develop a sense of legal orthodoxy and actually internally police heretical legal ideas. And all of this is happening within a very real material uh, transformation, which is a shift from morality to writing, not a clean shift. This is not a unilinear shift, but there are, there's certainly over time more and more reliance on material sources and textuality rather than oral transmission or composition. And this inevitably leads to canonization of texts and once there is canonization of texts then there's also a kind of consolidation of legal opinions so broadly speaking we know that there are political and economic and social factors you know another one is legal consumers we know i think even less about that which is the ways in which consumers of the islamic legal system sort of demanded conformity and orthodoxy within the tradition And uh, in addition, as I mentioned, materiality. So broadly speaking, those are are the factors that I think of the most. But I think that it's an area of scholarship that needs more study.
0: When you're looking through this kind of development of the conception, parentage, and the maturation of uh, the Islamic tradition, you place your critiques in these these case studies, some of which you've mentioned already, just so listeners can have an idea about Kind of the more concrete things you're looking at in the book. Can you walk us through some of these case studies that you you work on, on in the book? How how do they uh, serve your your efforts when you're when you're doing your writing?
1: Okay, well, I'll take these as two separate questions because the issue of parentage has to do again with the kind of metaphors and underlying structures that modern scholars of Islamic law in the West have used to describe Islamic legal history. So the parentage in anthropomorphic metaphors comes from things like the title of an article being the birth of Islamic law, right? The, the sort of constant reference to birth, embryonic phases, formative uh, eras, and these, then these notions of trying to identify either the Roman or Jewish roots or parentage, as I put it, of Islamic law. So the entire discourse on borrowing and influences on Islamic law have to do effectively with trying to identify who really gave birth to Islamic law. Was it Muslims or was it Romans or was it Jews? And so there's a very deep critique in the book of all of these evolutionary ideas, these anthropomorphic metaphors and these notions of parentage for multiple reasons, methodologically, for the racialized ideas that are deeply problematic about them, for the evolutionary aspects and the unilinear developmental narrative of history that it proposes, all of which I think are problematic. The case studies themselves are really what is the basis of the project. I mean, as I said before, I started with the case studies and then wrote the methodological chapters to explain why I was doing the case studies and the way I was doing them. So the first case study is on prisoners of war, and that one is paired with the chapter on source criticism, because basically what I do is look at a wide variety of Islamic sources, sources, some of which are underused, I think, and I try to interweave them. And by this, I mean that I take a genre of historical sources like biography and interweave it with Islamic legal texts and try to see if by putting together different genres we can come up with a story or some understanding of a case study that would be different. And in that particular case study, I found that whereas late antique Muslim jurists prohibited prisoner of war execution, medieval jurists generally did not. And I attribute this in part to a shifting understanding of historical precedent meaning that in the late antique period, Muslim jurists thought that the prophet had not uh, executed war prisoners, whereas in the medieval period, they did. They were relying on the same basic sets of sources, but they interpreted those sources differently. The second case study is on circumcision, and that one is paired with the chapter about origins and racial identities. And there I take this assumption that Muslims circumcise because Jews circumcise, and try to basically uh, blast that out of the water by showing the ways in which uh, Islamic circumcision is understood within a really different discursive space. And even within the Islamic tradition, circumcision within particular genres has different meanings. So whereas circumcision in the rabbinic Jewish tradition is about a covenant, and it's very detailed about a ritual performance on the eighth day, etc., etc., in the Islamic tradition, circumcision is tied to the notion of fitra, which is natural predisposition, and it has much more to do with cleanliness than it does with any kind of particular Abrahamic uh, association. That's the case even though many Islamic historical sources legitimate circumcision as being part of the Abrahamic tradition. That is, when you look at different genres, you see different pictures of what circumcision looks like in the Islamic tradition and that's why in that chapter I provide this metaphor of a kaleidoscope and I suggest that when you look at different genres of Islamic texts you see circumcision in different colors basically and there the point is again to go up against this sort of assumption of borrowing and influence and to show the ways in which the traditions are actually much more multivalent and much more shifting internally and externally. And the final case study is on wife-initiated divorce, and there I basically do a chronology of how wife-initiated divorce changed in the Islamic tradition and in the Jewish legal tradition. And I show that in both traditions, it became more difficult for women to initiate and procure a divorce on their own initiative over time, and that there are similar strategies and similar explanations for why that happened one of them being tied to this broader issue about heterodoxy to orthodoxy and how orthodoxy was understood. So those are basically the the three case studies. And in each one of them has a particular objective that matches with the odd numbered chapter that precedes it.
0: I, I must say that the the structure and the pairing of these analytical lenses with these case studies uh, I think was really valuable and, and part of reason why you uh you won the award. It's a, it's an excellent book. Thank you. I'm wondering if we can uh, close the conversation with a question of critique uh, since this book does this so well, but I, I think this is uh, something brave to do as well, right? So um, thinking about the reception of your critique, I'm wondering how did you expect uh, your your book to re- be received and what do you hope folks might take away from it in, in the end as well?
1: It's an interesting question because, of course, Much of the book was written in response to very harsh critiques and a lot of conflict, really, within my own career of uh, a lot of rejections, a lot of (laughs) uh, reviews that were very hard to understand. And so much of the explanation in the book is really about explaining my work to other scholars in the field who I didn't feel were fully understanding. I don't know if they will or they won't. I I can't really tell. I mean, to be honest with you, it's, uh, you know, the reviews are out there. And some of the reviews I read and thought, I don't think you understood my book, which I guess is typical. I don't think it's uh, unusual in any way. But all of that, I think, can't be decontextualized again because this is what I do in my own work, with what I think is unfortunate kind of problems of gender and being the junior scholar and a woman in a field that is dominated by male scholars. And to be doing that kind of unconventional work, in addition, means that the reception isn't so simple.
0: Well, uh, it's certainly deserving of uh, the the award here. Uh, congratulations on a wonderful book. Thank you. And uh, I hope many many people will uh, pick it up and and uh, take your critiques uh, to heart.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your time.